Greetings and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute to tonight's event, The Economic Cost of the Pandemic, Economics in Catholic Social Thought and Dialogue. My name is Michael LaChevalier and I'm Associate Director of the Lumen Christi Institute. I'm grateful to tonight's co-sponsors who have helped make this event a success. America Media, the Catholic Research Economist Discussion Organization or Credo for short, the Beatrice Institute, the St. Benedict Institute, the Collegium Institute, the Nova Forum, and the St. Paul Catholic Center. Now, since 2008, the Lumen Christi Institute has drawn together bishops, economists, and scholars to bring to bear the insights of Catholic social thought and economics to society's most pressing issues. Some of our past conferences have addressed financial markets, environmental degradation, the family in a changing economy, the human person, and international trade and development. It's thus with excitement that we continue this long tradition when we, as we host tonight's conversation on the cost of the pandemic. As it is Giving Tuesday, and as you all know, one of the costs, um, one of the, group, the groups that have uh, borne some of the harms of this pandemic have been uh, nonprofits. I'd be remiss if I didn't also invite you to help support our work of hosting conversations like these. You can donate today at www.lumenchristi.org slash donate. Tonight's conversation will be moderated by Joseph Kabowski. Joe is the David F. and Aaron M. Singh Foundation Professor of Economics in the Department of Economics at the University of Notre Dame. He holds a PhD from the University of Chicago. Kabowski's research focuses on growth development and international economics. In 2012, he was awarded the prestigious Frisch Medal for the best paper in the journal um, Econometrica and has published scholarly articles in many other journals, including American Economic Review and the Journal of Economic Theory. He is the president of Credo, a past consultant to Catholic Relief Services and is currently a consultant to the USCCB Committee on Domestic Justice and Human Development. Our conversation will feature tonight two leading um, prestigious economists. Jesus Fernandez Villaverde is professor of economics at the University of um, Pennsylvania. He serves as a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, Penn's Population Studies Center, and the Center for Economic Policy Research. His research focuses primarily on the computation and estimation of dynamic um, such, uh, general equilibrium models. He is co-author um, of several pieces, including Macroeconomics, a Dynamic Approach, which is forthcoming with Princeton University Press. Casey Mulligan is professor of economics at the University of Chicago, and he received his PhD in economics from the University of Chicago in 1993. He's also served as chief economist of the White House Council of Economic Advisors and as a visiting professor teaching public economics at Harvard University, Clemson University, and the Irving B. Harris Graduate School of Public Policy Studies at the University of Chicago. Mulligan's research um, cover, covers capital and labor taxation, the gender wage gap, health economics, social security, voting, and economics of aging. He's the author of Side Effect and Complications, The Redistribution Recession, Parental Priorities and Economic Equality, and most recently co-wrote Chicago Price Theory. He has also written numerous op-eds and blog articles for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, and the Chicago Tribune. I'm gonna hand it over to Joe now, but I do wanna call your attention to the fact that at the end of our moderated conversation, there'll be a time for question and answer. And for those of you who are joining us on Zoom, 
you can use the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen to pose questions at any time during the conversation. So Joe, I'll hand it over to you and Casey and Jesus, I invite you to turn on your screens and turn on your mics, your, your mics. Thank you, um, Michael. It's a dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models. It's a mouthful. Um, uh, so this event on the economic costs of the pandemic, Catholic social teaching and economics in dialogue offers the insights from two research economists into one element of the great crisis uh, facing the world today. The cost of the pandemic include, of course, the human toll in terms of death, sickness and suffering, as well as the public cost to governments, the economic cost to businesses, both large and small, the costs to families, communities and individuals, and the cost in terms of human health, suffering, and even death caused by the various responses uh, to the health epidemic, uh, both private and governmental, uh, which uh, deprive human beings of their wages, livelihoods, health, food, and even lives in some cases. Uh, so these are big questions. We do not intend to suggest that our reactions to the crisis should be decided on economic grounds alone, but we do note that the best government leaders, doctors, epidemiologists, et cetera, will themselves be taking into account the economic dimensions of the crisis of any, and of any policy response they pursue and have pursued. Uh, at least we hope they will. We hope that those watching this webinar will find this discussion provided here to be helpful. Um, we also hope that this conversation, not only touching on the economic side, but will also be received and uh, to the extent uh, possible taken into account and in, not only in policy circles, but in the uh, tradition of Catholic social thought. Uh, as many of you know, this tradition offers a set of core principles for reflection on the questions facing society. Uh, these principles derive both from the long tradition of Christian thought and the philosophy it has integrated and by the church's encounter with phenomenon of the modern world, including the French Revolution, industrialization, the bureaucratic state, totalitarianism, a free market capitalist economy, bringing both great benefits and also human costs, pollution, environmental degradation, inequality, poverty, and globalization. Um, I'll give you a little uh, introduction to some of these core principles. Among these core principles in Catholic social teaching uh, stand several. Uh, one is the dignity of each human person and the value of every human life obviously relevant to the conversation. An, an understanding of human freedom that goes beyond simple legal license to do what one wants, but understands the link that true freedom is always guided by reason and truth, and therefore involves responsibility as well as rights. And uh, uh, Catholic social teaching also has an understanding of the person as part of a relationship. So people are members of families, societies, always in relationship with others and not merely individuals. So this involves a need for solidarity and mutual concern among nations, among groups, and among persons in society. It also involves applying the principle of subsidiarity or the coordination of government action so that it takes place at the level appropriate to care for human communities and so that the higher and lower levels of government coordinate and assist each other and higher and level lowers of uh, elements of society as well. Uh, so nourishing and making a place for families and human communities within a civil society. Uh, it also involves a sense of the common good as orienting societies, which goes beyond this individualism 
and best in well at the same time best enabling individuals and societies to attain their own perfection. Uh, another principle of in play here is the need for an understanding of the natural world as a gift of God and not merely as something to be mastered and controlled and exploited as the source of inputs of production for human consumption. And finally, above all, love and justice in their many dimensions between persons, communities, and nations. Um, these are guiding principle, uh, principles. We believe uh, that economics has a role to play in this discussion of the current crisis, but it can, alone cannot provide the answers as we mentioned above. Um, but what economics is very good at is thinking about trade-offs. And we face many alternative policies that have been considered and even implemented across states, across the globes. Um, these policies have implications for the economy, but for many other aspects of life and death as well. Uh, the fact that there are alternative policies involved imply that there are trade-offs and understanding and identifying what these trade-offs are in a world with, where we face limitations is what economics is all about. Um, so we think that economics is important to the conversation as well as uh, Catholic social thought, as well as uh, virtues like justice. Um, with that, uh, we have two excellent speakers here that have done uh, some research that we'll start with uh, their presenting, their assessment of the situation. Um, we'll start with Casey. Casey, go ahead. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, guys, for organizing this. Um, I brought a couple slides with me just to organize thoughts a little bit. Um, there are, I think, a couple economic principles that come into play in thinking about the costs of this pandemic. Um, the first is, and you can see the economists and me coming out here, the disease has something in common with taxes. And just like taxes um, cost more to the taxpayer than just the money they fork over to the government, uh, the cost of the disease exceeds just the health that we fork over to the virus, if you will. Um, and it, particularly in human populations, and this may come to the discussions later, um, human populations are quite different than animal populations in that people take steps, they incur costs in order to avoid um, the health harms themselves. So they'll take on non-health costs in order to avoid the health costs. I think the second principle is that externalities, meaning that um, an action of an individual person or a business is going to affect other parties that they're not necessarily transacting with that doesn't justify central planning. Um, externalities are the first on the checklist of a long checklist of whether you want to have central planning uh, would, be, would be an improvement on things. First, first problem with central planning, even after you've cleared the externality hurdle, is that corrective policies can make things worse, even if they're correct on average, um, the fact that they won't be perfect and their imperfections can really be pretty imperfect. And I, I think we see that in the current situation. Certainly we've seen it historically, you know, central planning just doesn't work. Um, there's a lot of unique circumstances out there and there's nobody smart enough 
to be in charge of the government to account for all those circumstances and the freedom of individuals and businesses who, who are keenly aware of their own personal situations to react to those situations is pretty important. And that's not just a hypothetical, it's not just a historical, it's very much true right now that people are very different both on the health side of the ledger, people are very different in terms of how much this virus can harm them. Um, and they're also very different in terms of what they would be doing and what they can do when they're out in the world interacting with people, you know, doing the opposite of social distancing. So there's, there's no way any government governor or president can keep track of all that. And they want to try to leverage those differences among the people, not uh, suppress them with a one size fits all. And the last uh, economic principle is that I say the demand for regulations is price elastic, meaning when we realize the regulation costs more, we want to do less of it. Um, and that's the opposite of government gut reaction. Government gut reaction is when they try something, they'll say, oh, um, you know, this, this isn't working so well, we got to try it even harder. <laughs> now, they, in this situation, when we, if we see that social distancing isn't delivering what we thought it should, would, we want to want to do less uh, and try some alternative approaches. So let me show you a little bit about the uh, excess burden, the non-health costs of this pandemic. This is a graph I've been calculating uh, on part of my website, the daily economic costs of the pandemic. And one of the big costs is the last lack of economic activity. It's not the only cost as we'll see. Um, and economic activity has shrunk dramatically by the standards of the previous recession. We blew past that um, by March 23rd or so. And now we're in a maybe three or four times as deep uh, as that recession. And it's not clear that we're done going down in terms of reduced economic activity. Um, I, I try to break this in, in, into components, the, the, the economic costs. On the one hand, we have um, the market production, which is what would be the fact that people aren't working. Now, when people don't, don't work, they have other things they can do. So we never take market production as solely a benefit. It has opportunity costs as well, things that people could do instead. Um, so I account for that, that we have now more time at home and there are things we can do and we are doing at home that we don't do when we're busy working. Um, and that has some value. So you see that has a different sign in the calculus. The different columns here are different measures, whether quarterly measures or daily measures, annual measures or a number of people measures. The different rows are different types of costs. Um, but one thing that's unusual about this compared to other types of recessions is that yeah, we have more time to do non-market activity, but the non-market activity is not as good either. Um, the types of things that we would do with our leisure time, if you will, or our home time is not as productive. I think a good example, a good in the sense that it's important, good in the sense that it's one of the easier things to measure outside the market is the uh, activities of students and young people who are learning the normal situation, they would be learning things. They're not considered part of GDP, but they're, they produce a lot of value normally. And schooling just isn't going as well as it was uh, three or four months ago. And that, that's a loss of value. Also, young people who already graduated, they got their diploma, 
but they're out there. Normally they would be out there learning things about their jobs, their careers and themselves that that learning has been put on hold as well. So all these costs come down to about something like 7 trillion a year or 28 billion per workday as long as this uh, kind of shutdown continues. I put together the two types of costs, the health costs, particular mortality costs here in blue and then the economic costs that I just talked about in red. And you can see that idea of the excess burden that the costs of the disease here are mostly economic. In other words, if you're working on a vaccine, God bless you for working on a vaccine, think you're saving lives. Well, what you're saving even more would be getting rid of this red bars. When we have a vaccine, the red bars will go away just as well as the blue bars and the, and the economic costs are pretty hefty and being felt literally by hundreds of millions of Americans. So I appreciate uh, your attention and look forward to your questions. Thanks, Casey. Um, just a couple of follow-up, just for, for some clarification. Um, VSL, the value of a statistical life, how do, how do economists, is that just an arbitrary number? I think that probably comes off as um, odd to non-economists. Do you want to provide a little bit of an explanation for that? Yeah, I call that, it's kind of a populist approach to this question. So um, we don't, say as, uh, as scientists, if you will, oh, what is a life worth? We, act, we ask, what do the people do in their lives? Um, what do, how do they make these trade-offs? And then in policy making, as, because we're agents for the voters um, and, and people, we would say, well, we wanna make decisions in line with the type of decisions they make for themselves. Um, and that would be a different approach. Another approach would be say, well, maybe the people in charge know more and they ought to make different decisions than people make for themselves. The VSL doesn't do that. Okay. Um, thanks. Uh, we'll just go to Jesus. Uh, go ahead, Jesus. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. I don't have uh, slides prepared, but I have some um, remarks. So first of all, thanks a lot for inviting me to participate in this conversation. In some sense, I come from both sides of the aisle because A, I'm an economist, but also I believe in the principles of Catholic social thought. And I have always tried to integrate those within my own research. Uh, as some of you may have guessed, given my funny first name and even longer last name, I'm originally from Spain. And if you have been following the news at all, you probably have realized that Spain is one of the countries that had been hit the hardest by the epidemic. It was one of the first countries in Europe to lock down at a complete level. And if any of you are complaining about how tight the lockdown is in the US, in Spain, you will be literally arrested by the police if you were just in the street. And it has put a lot of pressure on and the, the country to a degree that uh, there are voices concerned about the possibility that the fiscal situation of the country will be unsustainable in the middle run. So in that sense, um, it's natural for all economists to be interested in these issues. So building a little bit on cases and remarks, what can an economist bring to this conversation? Well, I think that the first insight that we can bring is that there are limitations on what we can do. It's not something very pleasant to do, uh, 
one of my professors when I was an undergrad used to joke that nobody likes economists because they are like that annoying kid that in second grade told you that Santa Claus doesn't exist. And that's an important point. Um, there are things that we would like to do and we just cannot do. And in particular, countries, nations as a whole face limitations on what we can achieve and it faces limitations on the type of policies that we can implement. So think, for instance, about the type of relief that we can give to people who are unemployed. Of course, I would love to be able to give more generous relief, but after a while, there is just not enough resources. And this is just not an issue of, well, let's touch the rich a little bit more. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, there, there, there are serious limitations. Once you have accepted what I think is uh, obvious, but sometimes forgotten point of the existence of limitations, one needs to evaluate trade-offs. And trade-offs are always unpleasant because whoever is on the losing side of the trade-off tends to think that she had a more uh, important case so that she would love to uh, have a different outcome. But you know, trade-offs are what we have on the table and, and we need to face them. And of course, uh, in the way we select those trade-offs, we can bring theories of justice, uh, some of them informed by Catholic social thought, but it's very hard not to consider the existence of those trade-offs. In my particular research, I have tried to bring information about those trade-offs by assessing some of the econometrics of this epidemic. So what is this about and why economists have something to say? Uh, economists have spent a lot of time with data. Um, perhaps some of you are not fully aware of it. They, you think that economists tend to write theoretical models. That's true as well. But a lot of what economists do day to day is look at numbers and crunch numbers. And that's particularly my, my expertise. So I spent quite a lot of time thinking about numbers and how we can take standard models to the data and learn about uh, the extent of the epidemic, the extent of death, etc. And there are a few relatively positive things that we have learned and a few relatively negative things that we have learned. Relatively positive is that the extent of the epidemic is a little bit higher than we thought. Uh, you can ask yourself, you know, why is this good news? Well, it's good news if 20 or 25% of people in New York already had the infection because A, it tells you that the mortality rate was not as high as we fear maybe in early March. And it's good also because it moves us a little bit closer to uh, herd immunity. There's a lot of discussion in, in the long run about you know, how, where is really the threshold for this herd immunity. So in that sense, I think that we have learned uh, a couple of good things. Uh, the bad thing I have learned from my research is that there is a still a lot of uncertainty in the data. Um, if I may use a word that economists use, and I, I hope not to scare anyone, models of the epidemic are under-identified, which means they are very different combination of parameter values that account for the data nearly as well as each other. And what is relevant for policymakers is that different values of the parameters have different implications about the trade-offs that we want to take. Uh, nevertheless, I think we have made progress over the last four or five weeks in thinking about the design 
of better targeted policies in terms of lockdowns. So for instance, we went for a very generalized blanket lockdown policy. And in retrospective, that was probably not the best, not only in terms of economic costs, but also in our ability to sustain it over the long run, which is something I think many politicians didn't think very hard in late March when many of these policies were introduced. And I think that these days we have accumulated, at least uh, from my reading of the empirical evidence, a lot of uh, evidence that we probably in the next phase, we want to move more to targeting certain social groups. Uh, we know that the COVID is much, much more dangerous for people who are over 60 than for people who are under 60. So we want to design policies that try to protect those over 60 much more carefully that try to protect uh, those under 60. And that has implications about how we want to run the economy, how we want to run our schools, etc. And we have also uh, learned quite a bit about the type of um, events that trigger a lot of contagions versus events that trigger less contagions. And what we hope is to learn a little bit more about that over the next few weeks. And hopefully, again, going to Joe's comment at the beginning, be able to inform policymakers about how to design policies that are less burdensome on the economy so we don't have the terrible numbers that Casey is showing us and we can sustain this uh, in a little bit more of a, of a, of a long run uh, perspective. And if you want later during the discussion, I can give you many more details or answer concrete questions. Thank you, Jesus. So um, just to clarify for both of you, I guess Jesus said you, th you thought that more targeted uh, policies um, were the kind of best thing that we should be doing at this point. Casey, um, you seemed to, I wasn't clear exactly where you were standing in terms of what the policy should be. Do you think that the policy should just be uh, laissez-faire or what? I mean, I think one of the principles of regulation, which would be that use individual incentives as much as you can. So I don't know that Jesus and I are gonna be all that different. And he has in mind, I think that some people, for example, are more vulnerable and they have in mind that they're more vulnerable. So you don't really have to force them to do a lot. Um, you can try to facilitate arrangements where they can do the, some of the things they'd wanna do you know, you have stores, for example, that have sh uh, special shopping hours for the elderly and then the younger people aren't even allowed in the store. Um, those are the kind of things that you can facilitate but, and they're leveraging the things that individuals want to do anyway. Um, okay. That's the idea. So kind of, I guess both of your analyses um, involve epidemiological models. I guess, Casey, for your... Um, costs of the value of life saved, you have to have some estimate of how many lives uh, are lost or saved uh, by different policies. And Jesus, you're uh, talking about identifying parameters is all about understanding the dynamics of the, um, the pandemic. Um, I guess we've all in the past few weeks become sort of armchair epidemiologists. And it reminds me a little bit of in 2008, when the crisis hit and we all became armchair economists. And I remember not taking too well to that. Uh, 
So I guess the question is um, sort of, <clears throat> um, why do you think economists have something to say about uh, this, this matter? And are you worried at all that you might, you might be out of depth, out of your depth in terms of the epidemiology? I can go first if you want. So uh, first, I think that one needs to build uh, from a position of uh, being humble. And at least in the way I have tried to write my papers is to highlight that there is a lot of things that I don't know, and I'm not going to try to pretend to talk about those. So for instance, in my papers, I don't analyze any of the clinical components of the virus. I don't analyze any of the clinical treatments that we need to uh, give to people. Uh, experts on health are much better uh, suited than I am to analyze those. At the core, however, of a lot of these epidemiological models, you have a dynamic model. And economists have thought for a very, very long time on how to simulate and how to estimate dynamic models. In fact, that's what my graduate teaching is about. It's about how to set up a dynamic model, how to solve it, how to estimate it. And um, you know, at the end of the day, whether or not this is capital or it's the number of infected people, it's just a state variable that you want to, to keep track of. So I will, I will argue I have at least a little bit of understanding of those issues. And the third point where I think economists can bring something to the table from a slightly different perspective is exactly what Casey so nicely put it at the beginning of his, uh, of his um, talk, which is we understand that people react. And a lot of epidemiological models are in some sense very mechanical. And they just take parameters as given as if they were constants of nature. And in reality, those parameters reflect, some of them, not all, but some of them reflect the decisions of people, individual decisions. And economists have been thinking for over 200 years about how people make those decisions. So in that sense, I think we bring a little bit to the table in our ability to discuss uh, those aspects. Casey? Good. You know, I think Joe is bringing general question from the public, but I'm gonna say it anyway. You say it ain't so, Joe. Um, you know, we, we're being accused of being amateur epidemiologists, but actually economists have been engaged in this for decades. Um, we're not sitting in an armchair. I mean, this is something that we have studied. Um, I, it really got going in the 80s and 90s with the AIDS epidemic. And that's when we were amateurs. And we started to ask things like, well, are, are they right that AIDS is gonna grow, AIDS prevalence will grow at an exponential rate? Are they right that essentially everyone is certainly in broad communities of people unmarried are gonna get AIDS? And we said, you know, economics doesn't predict that. And um, a lot of research was put into that. Michael Kramer, who just won the Nobel Prize, he had done a lot of that work in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Tom Phillipston, who's probably talking to the president right now about these very issues. He was a Chicago professor. That's why I'm kidding Joe. Joe, Joe knew him as well, um, who did a lot of his career was based on bringing economics into epidemiology. And by that meaning, taking into account that animal populations and human populations aren't different. Human people, uh, people, they, they have some understanding of risks doesn't mean everyone's a genius and they take steps to protect themselves. Sometimes they overprotect, sometimes they underprotect, but they take steps 
protect themselves. And that makes a very, very big difference in the predictions. Um, if you look at the book by Philipson and Judge Posner, who's a law and economics expert at Chicago, they wrote during the AIDS epidemic, they got death threats, but they said, hey, epidemiologists, you're way over predicting this. And they turned out to be very much right. Uh, Philipson and Posner were, and they developed a lot of these ideas that I talked about today, that it, maybe the main cost of a disease is not a health cost because of what people do. And most of the costs are non-health costs. Um, and in that sense, from an economist point of view, really figuring out ways to eliminate disease and treat disease is actually more valuable than the medical people really understand it to be because it's, its benefits go beyond just reducing the death count. And by the way, I, I agree with Jesus and I kind of stick to my specialty. So my picture behind me doesn't have any forecast of how many people would die in some alternative scenario without a lockdown or whatever. These are just actual people who died. Now maybe CDC gave me the wrong numbers, um, but these are the CDC numbers of people who've actually died on specific days in the past. Uh, and the, where the epidemiology models come in and talking about what about the future? What about different scenarios for the future? And then there you, you do have to get into some of the, their turf, but it, we've been in their turf before. Um, you t touched on it uh, already. Um, you know, one of the key uh, principles of Catholic social thought is human dignity and the value of every life. And this kind of, how do we value, um, a lot of people feel that the entire discussion when you bring in the economy is based on this idea of um, a bad starting point of trading off money for human beings or trading off the value of the stock market for uh, people's lives. Um, if you were to ignore the economic costs and just think about the best policy to minimize death, uh, would that change a lot of the analysis or? Uh, um, Not a whole lot. I mean, you would be interested in things like, like Jesus mentioned, how long can people sustain this? <laughs> if your objective is just to minimize death and that's all you care about, still you might want to know about the cost because still the people are not your slaves, right? They, they have to be somewhat compliant. And I think you would want to know what kind of a cost am I imposing on the people that I'm forcing to do things? And you would want to try to find you know, a less cost way. Is there a way that I could save the same number of lives with making unemployment rate be just 15% instead of 30? And, and those sort of things. And so the costs are going to come in there in a big way um, because nobody, even a dictator is not a dictator. You need the cooperation from the people who bear these costs. So let me, let me bring like a slightly different perspective. Um, I was talking with my cousin um, a couple of days ago. Uh, she's in high school. And just to put all the cards on the table, she's in a very fancy high, private high school. And yet she was bitterly complaining that online teaching had been a total disaster, that she had learned nothing over the last month. Uh, what made me think, well, if my cousin is going to a super fancy private high school that probably has the best uh, support available to do online teaching and she's very disappointed, I don't want to think about how teaching is going on in a lot of school districts that are very strained even in normal times to supply uh, education. And those are real costs as well. 
And those costs you will suffer uh, even if we were not in a market economy. And uh, kids are going to be less educated and this is going to have long-run consequences for their lives. They are going to be less productive. They are going to have worse jobs in the future. And this is going to have very, very long consequences. So any type of policy that is trying to save lives as valuable as those are also needs to understand that you are making damages to education. You are making, you are imposing mental damages. There has been quite a few increases, for instance, in suicides and case of uh, domestic violence within houses. So in that sense, this is just not about the economy. This is not about, let's be sure that we save and the big corporations of America. This is about the fact that, as I was mentioning before, we, we are facing very serious trade-offs and just closing our eyes and pretending those trade-offs are not there because we feel bad about talking uh, about those trade-offs, I don't think is, is, very, is very responsible. And something I always appreciated uh, from Catholic social thought was that there was always the feeling that on one hand, one needs to have ethical principles and moral principles, but on the other hand, also needs to be realistic about what the world is. And you cannot uh, close your eyes and pretend the world is different than what really is. Casey, did you have anything to say about these sort of broader um, elements of human flourishing is something that Catholic social thought appreciates uh, important that uh, Jesus has touched on things like education and mental health and social relationships. Does economics have anything to say about those dimensions? In oh, your for mind? sure. I mean, that was a major part of my calculations are non-market um, stuff not counted in GDP. I gave schooling as an example because that's my industry. And it's one we measure better. But for sure, that there, most of life is not work. But a lot of that part of life that's not work is not going well either. <laughs> then you know, because a lot of that part of life, going to church, we go with other people. Uh, community is really important there. You, you don't practice religion by yourself in most religions um, and, and for good reason. And so um, we are in a situation where even if you don't want to compare, look at the market at all, we are in a situation where the cost is comparable to the disease itself. I mean, the cure, cost of the cure is comparable to the disease itself. And that's what I call the excess burden. Yes, and if, if I may add something to Casey's very nice point, is the following. If you were going to do a breakdown of the cost and benefits of the current policies, there is a very important aspect, uh, which is related with um, age. What do I mean by that? Uh, a lot of the benefits of the current policies accrue to those over 60, because those are the ones that are uh, having a much better chances of survival. But a lot of the costs are going to people under 40, the people not being educated, the people with less attachment to the labor force, the people that has less liquid wealth to survive a few difficult months. And, and, and that's a fact. So we are, we are transferring a lot of resources from young people to old people. And in the US and in many other Western economies, the old people are not the weakest links in society anymore. Many of them have very generous social security benefits. They have a lot of assets and they own their houses. 
and we have a large generation of people who uh, imagine the following scenario. Imagine that you finished college in 2007, 2008, just the year you finished college, you were hit by the financial crisis. Finally, by 2013, 2014, you were starting to do a little bit better. And now this comes to you. Uh, we are going to have a generation, those around 37, 38 right now that have suffered a lot, much more than any other generation in the US, perhaps since World War II and the Great Depression. And I don't see a lot of the discussion in society realizing that uh, A, these are the real losers of this of this situation and catholic social thought also has always a preference for those who suffer the most but second if i may step a little bit from the main conversation and the political economy the, the political consequences of this can be very serious in the sense that you are going to have a generation of people who is going to feel that quote unquote they have been betrayed by society twice in a row and that's not going to be good for the health of society in the long run you don't want to have 15 or 20% of society who is very, very unhappy with the current situation of affairs. So um, Jesus has brought up this uh, question of inequity and inequality and, uh, and justice. Um, Casey, you brought up the, um, the fact that there is an epidemiological externality. And I guess in the laissez-faire uh, situation, well, you get too much, um, too little social distancing. Uh, and in particular, when you think about the inequalities, young people don't face the brunt of the disease, it's old people, but young people can be carriers that can pass the disease on. So there's an argument that certainly if we do nothing, that the, um, the inequity is toward the old. The young people get to live their lives, uh, but the old people suffer from it. And, uh, but Jesus is bringing up the idea that the lockdown itself is inequitable or unjust toward the young. So how do we kind of balance these, uh, these forces in your mind or is it important? What is very important, it, it, I just had seven minutes, but the second, I believe the second row in my table um, was very much trying to bring in those costs. Uh, I had focused on the averages or the aggregates, but how things are distributed among people is important and the burden you know, the 20, what did I say, 26 billion per working day, that's not equally shared at all. Um, like Jesus said, it's mostly among younger people. And our government has responded to that real cost, which is not reflected in the aggregate with relief efforts. And those themselves are gonna make the aggregates worse. And that's not a critique of the relief efforts, it's just showing that the inequities are, are important to all of us. And that's why we're willing, to, even though our economic pie has shrunk, we're willing to shrink it even more to try to help out the people who are bearing the brunt of it. Um, and, that, and in my calculus, that shows up as, it's actually the biggest single entry. Uh, after the fact that people aren't working, the, the relief efforts are, are pretty costly and it's gonna be a burden on our economy after this is over, that's a burden that we'll be living with. Maybe justly so, but it's it's not free. So we've seen a lot of uh, variety of outcomes across countries and across states in the United States, and um, you know anything from you know people say, well, maybe we should be following following the Swedish model. Everybody would love to be following the uh, Korean model or the outcomes at least. 
uh, and um, probably not so much following the Spain-Italian model, although the U.S. doesn't have much, much room at this point. Um, do you guys have a sense of how much of this comes from differences in policy and how much of this comes from um, differences in initial points, you know, differences in underlying conditions? Um, so uh, very early in this, in this crisis, in very early March, I brought a short op-ed where I tried to highlight the importance of a state capability. By mean by that is sometimes economists spend a lot of time fighting. Uh, should we have big governments or should we have small governments? And I think that over the last 15 years or so, we have accumulated a lot of evidence that the ability of governments to do what they are supposed to do may be even more important. And what I'm seeing over here is that states that by standard measures were considered very capable are doing very well. So which are the states that most rankings out there highlight as very good? New Zealand, Australia, South Korea, Sweden, Germany. And states that are much less capable, Italy, Spain, etc., are doing much worse. The US is a little bit of a mess because it has a lot of different levels of government, the federal, states, county, etc. But I think there is an argument to be made that the state capability in the US has deteriorated over the last 15, 20 years. And I think the behavior of the CDC at the beginning of this crisis is a good example of that lack of state capability. And any type of action you can undertake needs to take account of your state capability. And the policies I will recommend there if you're Sweden are different than the policies I will recommend if you are another country that has less capability. Um, as you say, we all will love to, to follow South Korea. That train has departed because they attacked the problem very early. Um, I think there is a lot of good things to be said about the Swedish case. And maybe two weeks ago, people were very critical with the Swedish experience. I think that there is a little bit of more positive assessment right now, but I also need to recognize that the jury is still out. Uh, I, my prior is that the Swedes are doing it a little bit better, but I need to recognize uncertainty. Casey? Yeah, I'm not sure, aside from some of the very early policies, I'm not sure that different policies are making a lot of difference. I mean, starting to hear that from our own health experts, like I heard uh, former FDA commissioner saying, you know, the lockdown really hasn't done much. <laughs> he, he thought that it would have bent the curve or whatever he wants to call it uh, much more than it actually did. And I, I think that's gonna be a common uh, refrain that a lot of the policies didn't do all that much. Uh, so therefore the differences across countries aren't so important. The exception I would say are those early movers. Now we'll see whether the early movers just delayed what we're experiencing now, in, in which case it's not so impressive. <laughs> They're just spread out, you know, lengthen the duration of time that they have to go through this. Um, but certainly there's a difference there. I, we can just judge, you know, how desirable uh, the difference is. I think really what's important is people protecting themselves. I mean, uh, 
people have done a lot on their own. Um, and, and that's part of the reason the economy is, is, has shrunk. It's not because one governor or another said they had to. It's because that's what they wanted to do, at least for the time being. They didn't want to go to the movies. They didn't want to go to restaurants. They didn't even want to go to the emergency room, even though they might be bleeding. Um, these are choices that people are making on their own without any government official telling them to do it. So I'm going to go to some of the questions uh, from the, uh, from the um, audience. Uh, there's a bunch, way too many to take. A few of them I'm going to group. Uh, one is, um, are, are we assuming that people are too rational? There seems to be some evidence that, um, you know, old people, the costs are the, are the uh, biggest to them epidemiologically, but they're also uh, often the people that aren't staying home and following orders. Um, so do we, do we have to think more about behavioral tendencies? Uh, that's a question. Another, an, another aspect of that is, is the value of uh, a statistical life, is it calculated on uh, assuming too much rationality and based on kind of unusual um, risks uh, rather than the, the type that we're facing now? I'm gonna give you a couple of questions and, and, and you can go on it. Uh, Casey, another concrete question for you, maybe you could start with this one and then we'll go to the behavioral for both of you, is um, what is a non-healthy cost that you have in mind that people are bearing? What did you mean by that? Um, for example, the kids who aren't learning. Um, certainly not learning at the rate they would have otherwise. They've missed out on learning opportunities. Um, that's a cost. I wouldn't call it a health cost. So it's a, oh, a non-health related or is it something that leads them to be less healthy? Regardless, even if it doesn't make them less healthy, that they just okay. don't know, they don't know math. Maybe math doesn't help with health. It helps with other things. I like math, um, but they don't know math. They're going to need an extra year you know, to learn that math or maybe they'll never learn it. Okay, what about the idea that people don't always behave rationally in our models, especially with high risk uh, situations? I mean, uh, you're standing up extremes here. Uh, the epidemiology models work best on rabbits, okay? And we're a lot more rational than rabbits. Let me, let me go out on that limb. I mean, it, this is a, just a proven fact that people understand there's a disease around them in a way that rabbits don't and they adjust their lifestyles in a way that rabbits don't. Um, and that affects the predictions um, of, of where you would go. Now, are they perfectly rational? If, you know, if, would, would they do anything different if they were all had Albert Einstein's brain? For sure. Um, that's a nice science fiction question, but I think the reality is people are reactive. You see, for example, in flus, who gets the flu uh, shot? The old people, because they're more at risk for it. I mean, we, we see this over and over and over again. Who gets screened for cancer? You name it. The, the, a lot of behavior goes in the direction of when people have more to gain and less to lose, they go in that direction. Jesus? Yeah. So I think I, I basically agree with Casey on this one. Um, I think that just understanding that people is going to react endogenously is the first order whether or not they are going to have behavioral biases is a second order question. So that will be, uh, what do I mean by second order? It's like the second digit of the answer, not the leading digit. Also, um, we tend to think that behavioral 
biases work better in or have a more capability to explain situations where people is not putting a lot of attention. So the standard example is, well, you know, I was supposed to fill in this form, but it's not that important. So I keep doing it. I keep procrastinating on them until I actually pass the deadline where I was supposed to fill in that form. But this is such an important and fundamental issue in life that people is going to pay a lot of attention to it. And even if they don't get the exact, absolutely right, that um, uh, a computer will get, a perfectly rational computer will get, I think they are going to be around 90, 95% there. And also this is a situation where people is learning a lot from each other. And in those type of environments where you see what your neighbor is doing, you see what other members of your family is doing, most people converge to something that eh, for all practical purposes looks a lot like a rational approach, or at least, you know, as a first pass. So in that sense, I, I don't, I mean, I, I like behavioral economics. I appreciate behavioral economics. I don't think this is an area where bringing a lot of behavioral insights is going to make me change my answers that much. Um, okay, this is going to be an unfair question, but um, it, it's one way to understand is I'm going to ask you to say, how many people are you willing to let die in your preferred policy? But that's not really the point of the question. I, I, I wonder what your predictions are in terms of if you were to follow the preferred policy, how many people do you think would be dying, say, in the United States over the course of this epidemic? And maybe what and maybe what what you think will happen given the policies that are in place or will come to to bear? Oh, that's such a difficult question, and I hope that you know. <laughs> I told you it was unfair. Yes, and, and I really hope that in six months there will be not a clip of me on YouTube saying something completely wrong. So there are two issues. One is the differences in lives that we will lose if we start to doing something now in comparison with the differences in lives that we will have lost had we started something back in March. But since no one has a time machine, bygones are bygones. My suspicion is that at this moment, a well-targeted set of policies will probably have a close to zero effect on total deaths. It may have a little bit of difference um, about when those deaths happen in the sense that I think a well set of targeted policies may spread them out a little bit more. So you will have a little bit more in the fall and maybe a little bit less now, but uh, I don't think it will make much of a difference on the total human uh, cost of, of the epidemic. Um, the, the way I want to think about this is exactly as Casey was saying before, is try to, you know, if, if we are going to end up I don't know. I think that some of the best guess estimates right now is that at least this first wave will end up with something around 100, 120,000 deaths, roughly, with a lot of uncertainty. I, I want to emphasize that, with a lot of uncertainty. Then the issue is, given that we are going to have those extra 60,000 deaths, how we are going to do it in the way that is less costly for everyone as possible. That's the way I like to think about it. Um, Casey? You know, uh, I, I, I'm not sure I translated in my mind these ideas into thousands of deaths, but I have looked at the data. In fact, when I was in the White House a year ago, we wrote a report, nobody paid attention to it, about the cost of pandemics. Um, 
And so we were, pandemic is not a new topic for us. Um, we didn't know it was gonna be a coronavirus and we didn't know where it was coming from and when and so on. Um, and we certainly didn't, we were certainly surprised by the reaction of people to it. But we have data, there have been viruses that have gone around the world before. Um, you had the 1957 flu. Um, even Italy hasn't approached, not even close yet, or Spain has not approached the death rate of the 1957 flu. Um, you had a flu two or three years ago that had a death rate that's more in the neighborhood where we are now. We're probably going to pass it because this our, our pandemic is not over. That I'll confidently say it's not over as of today. Um, so I would say somewhere in between, you know, the 2017 flu and the 1957 flu is where we'll end up. And I can also tell you, because since I can read plain English, a lot of the models were saying we were going to have things that were going to be 10 times worse than, worse than the 1957 flu. I don't think that's going to bear out to be true. Um, so I'm kind of grounded in the historical data. And it doesn't mean that we can't experience things that have never happened in history, but I, I just like to stay grounded in data and um, not go out on a limb and until maybe we're already out on that limb and I can have some data to confirm that really things are worse than some of those worst flus in the, historically. So the last question, unless Michael lets us go uh, further. Um, again, I'm gonna summarize. Um, there's questions about Catholic social teaching, Catholic social tradition. Um, how do Catholic social principles sort of affect your approach? Um, and one question, uh, I'll just read it verbatim. I appreciate Casey's gesture toward what we might think of as the principle of subsidiarity that is not rushing into central planning, but how would you envision the appropriate response of the federal government in a situation in which, in which many local authorities <clears throat> are indicating that they need help from the federal government? Well, the federal government is us. So I mean, the federal government is not some uh, external actor. Um, the, the states have to pay for the federal government. Now, if, if the question is whether uh, most of America should help out New York or a particular state, maybe Michigan, the rest of the state should be kicking in money for them. To some degree that, I guess that would happen. I mean, we, we've seen that with the relief efforts that there's a desire among all of us to help those hit the hardest, not just by state, but in general. Um, so I, th I think the states will be sharing. And I, I don't think the federal government's done in helping us share, you know, facilitating the sharing among us. Um, but in a more sort of um, localized approach, I guess you were thinking of not even at the local community, but just at the individual, that the, the policy can't be a one size fits all. Um, does, the government, does the government play any role within that at all? Or, or is it just left to the local communities? No, there, there definitely is a role, but it, it should be leveraging the individuals. Um, that, that's, that, that's gonna be, give them the most of the thing that they want, whatever it is they want. Um, uh, Jesus, do you wanna take a crack at the other question in terms of how does Catholic social teaching uh, influence your approach and your, your suggested policy? Well, in I think there is a 
you can think about that question at two levels. One is more general and the other one is more concrete. At uh, the more general level, I think it has always influenced the topics I work on. Um, sometimes as a researcher, it's tempting to work on something that you find very cute or very intriguing to yourself. And that's an important aspect to keep in mind, but you also need to understand that sometimes it's important to work on, on areas where you think you can make a little bit of a difference. And given my own background in econometrics and in computation, I thought that this was an area where I had something to say that could be at least marginally useful. So in that sense, I think that Catholic social thought has influenced my decision to write papers on this field. Um, with respect to the, the concrete aspect of the, of, the, of the paper, maybe a little bit less so. Uh, I, I was taught that uh, what you need to do is take the best tools that exist in science, in natural sciences, and in mathematics, and in statistical methods, and apply them. I think it influenced a little bit my policy recommendations in terms, especially of the uh, intergenerational equalities or inequalities that I was mentioning before. I'm really very worried about people under 40 in most Western economies. I, if I might, just might tell you a small anecdote, if, if, if I may. Um, one of my best friends um, was silly enough to decide to become a politician. And he always tells me that whenever he's interviewed on national TV and he talks about social security, he gets 500 emails. Whenever he talks about education, he gets two emails. Well, we have a very, very important voting block in Western societies, which is slightly older voters, and they tend to have a very clear set of preferences and interest. And some of the youngest and weakest people in society are not so well represented by the political process. And maybe my policy proposals are influenced a little bit by the fact that I'm really, really worried about the millions and millions of children that are not, the children are not being educated, the million and million of young people are going to have a very difficult time getting into the job market, and the millions and millions of young families are going to have a very difficult time, you know, having kids and just putting their life together. And I think that my, my own Catholic perspective has quite a bit of influence on that policy recommendation. Um. <clears throat> Uh, I got a note that I can keep going, as long as you guys can keep going. Uh, here's a good question. Um, thinking about long-term perspective, what changes would you like to see in economic and financial systems so that when a similar epidemic happens again 20 years from now, our economy and our society is better prepared? I mean, one thing I was working on in the White House was the, uh, I mean, it, really just to follow the rules. Um, it's been a long tradition in the Department of Health and Human Services, which is our federal health department, to essentially totally ignore the costs of their regulations. They, they have a mission. If their mission is to ma maximize the number of people who have health insurance, then that's what they do, regardless of the cost. And that's actually against federal rules, but they've ignored them for years. They continue to ignore them as we speak. And I tried to... Uh, nudge them in the direction of more recognizing the costs and looking at the costs and considering the costs because any 
any policy they do is harming some people and they should at least be aware of who they're harming and how much um, before they make their decisions. Um, from my perspective, I will highlight two points. One is better data. Uh, during all this crisis, I think that one fundamental constraint we have faced is we don't really know what is happening at the very uh, micro individual level. I have very seriously tried, for instance, to find out who is getting the, the virus these days in Europe after nearly two months of lockdowns. And it's nearly impossible to know who is getting infected right now. It's these people in hospitals, these people in normal life, these people in supermarkets, in grocery stores. And this is absolutely fundamental to think about the way forward. We just don't have that data. And funnily enough, governments have spent tons of money on creating gigantic bureaucracies uh, to be sure that whoever cuts my lawn is satisfied with some type of payment or health insurance, but they have not spent even as close by several orders of magnitude at figuring it out, those data issues. And the second point is thinking a little bit more ahead. Casey was mentioning that there was, that he had work on pandemics. I think there is many examples of existential risk that humanity uh, faces. And I'm a little bit concerned that at least in the area that I know a little bit better, which is central banking and fiscal policy, uh, a lot of governments do not think very carefully about those. I remember a few years ago, there was one of those fake scandals on the news because it was discovered that the US um, general staff had plans to invade Canada. And they were like, oh, why are we going to invade Canada? But the answer was, look, you're an army. You need to be prepared. Okay, with 99.99% probability, Canadians are always going to be nice people that we are never going to have any problem with. But there is this very, very, very small probability something very bad happens in Canada, and you need to be prepared for that. And I think that governments have failed in terms of their imagination of being prepared for these very, very unlikely events and have plans to address this. And I think that we need to, we need to think carefully about how, how, how we prepare for that. The pandemic's not even that unlikely. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know the pandemic was not even, I, I actually, I, I didn't go as far as you did, Casey, but one year ago, I gave a big talk in Spain and, and I actually mentioned pandemics as a possibility of, of, of the origin of economic crisis. I didn't really talk about for it for more than five seconds, but, you know, it was not completely out of the radar. Your, uh, your statement reminds me of Canadian bacon, where they say uh, that the Canadians have strategically located 80% of their population within 100 miles of our border. Yes, so we can, <laughs> we can invade them quickly. <laughs> um, here's a, another question. Could you both talk more about the positive role governments can play by promoting reasonable health policies to help address collective action problems related to this pandemic, given all its uncertainties? I think the guidance and the information is, is important. And they've done a lot of that. I mean, it, the CDC does have guidelines and things you can read about. And I think the data are showing that people are reacting to that. So they're actually not forcing, in, in some cases, they're not forcing people to do anything. They're just telling us the facts. And, um, you know, it, individuals aren't epidemiologists. They don't have these large data sets. So it's much appreciated when our uh, experts in the government provide that and, and turn them into recommendations. 
Yeah, from from my perspective, I think that we were talking about before countries that have done very well during this crisis, and a common factor that many observers have highlighted is a good and clear communication strategy, being candid about the facts, being candid about what we know and what we don't know, and avoiding both the risk of overpromising, but also the risk of you know, thinking this is the apocalypse. Because, you know, even under the worst possible scenario in early March, this was still not going to be the apocalypse. This was not going to be the end of times. And I think that governments that have tried to, you know, be clear, consistent, rational, and calm about the situation, uh, get trust from their citizens. Most citizens are pretty reasonable people and, and they recognize that. And other governments, and again, so you don't think I'm trying to be political, let me Take the case of Spain, the Spanish government has been extremely inconsistent in their messages. They change their opinion about things every other day. And most people are just very unhappy because they say, look, I, I don't even know what is happening when the prime minister is changing his tune every 24 hours. Okay, um, last question here. Um, um, we talked a little bit about the inequalities between the young and the old, Jesus, you touched on that, for example, and um, uh, Casey. Um, can you please, this here's the question, can you please address the differences in the impact of trade-offs and economic considerations on the poor and marginalized as Catholic social teaching calls for a preferential option for the poor? So how does this impact the poor and, should, and how can we place special emphasis on this? No doubt it impacts the poor. I mean, generally regulation is um, crafted with the, the interests and the uh, lifestyles of the upper class in mind. Um, the, the poor do not have the seat at the regulatory table. Um, you know, it, it, the, I think employment is down now about 40 million. Those aren't 40 million college graduates. I mean, those are, most of those 40 million people are um, of the group you said, Joe, and that, their costs are getting neglected and, and, and the benefits to the extent there are benefits are accruing in a very different group. Um, you know, you know how, how do you fix that? I don't, I, I'm not sure how to fix it, but we, at least we have to acknowledge the problem if you're gonna ever fix it. Yeah, so let me again, take a, a real life example. This may clarify my argument. Uh, one of my colleagues here at, at Penn uh, was telling me the other day he cannot work on his papers anymore because he's, he has three kids and he has basically become a full-time teacher. Um, this person is by far the best instructor at the Department of Economics, Der Kruger. And I have been in his class, he's absolutely amazing. I actually think his kids are getting a better education now than in regular times, because he's just so good at teaching. Um, there is another three kids of another family in a poor neighborhood of Philadelphia, and no matter how much their father loves them, the father can just not provide that level of education. So if we shut down the schools in the long run, um, who is suffering? Is the family of Turk? Well, the cost for their Kruger is that he will have one less paper. You know, he's full professor, so it doesn't really matter. And his kids are getting a great education. The real losers over here are the three kids of that family in a poor neighborhood of Philadelphia who are getting a terrible education. And, you know, we need to keep this in mind. Okay, Michael. Well, 
I want to thank you all um, for your uh, stimulating presentations and conversation. Um, Jesus, you mentioned uh, that we aren't in apocalyptic times, um, but we do actually have a chance in two weeks to explore a little more the apocalyptic. We're going to be bringing the great Bernard McGinn here um, with Professor Wilhelmine Otten for a conversation about apocalypticism in times of crisis. Um, so we can take that full historical view um, that uh, we so value here at the University of Chicago. Um, I want to thank our co-sponsors. Um, tonight's event was made a success because of um, organizations like America Media, the um, Credo, uh, the Beatrice Institute, St. Benedict Institute, Collegium Institute, Nova Forum, and the St. Paul Catholic Center over at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, I want to thank you all out there, uh, you generous listeners, and I, I'd like to invite you, if you um, appreciate programming like this, um, to help support us today at www.lumenchristi.org donate. Um, but one final time, uh, I want to thank um, each of you, our speakers, um, our, and, and Joe for, for moderating this uh, conversation tonight. And I hope uh, that we can have a, um, a an encore of this. Um, and I also hope that uh, the data uh, improves in the, in the meantime. Um, so, but I know that, that economics is the uh, sort of um, the dour discipline. And, uh, and I, I wanna thank you um, for nonetheless helping uh, shed important light on this topic and um, all the populations that are bearing the costs of this. Thank you.